talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The hammer looks great during the Heritage Classic yesterday. Time for a double shot with your Hamilton Bulldogs tonight. Go dogs! Row, row! Here's Scott Thompson! Is that our dog or is that... I'm hearing things. It's hard to tell. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. Man, uh, did you see it? Well, of course you saw it. Everybody saw it. Um, because none of us could get tickets to go. But other than that, uh, I digress. Uh, Hamilton, as usual, looked uh, absolutely spectacular. Tim Hortons Field uh, with uh, Maple Leafs and, and, uh, and the Sabres on the ice. The Heritage uh, uh, uniforms and stuff, sweaters were great, jerseys. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know, if you're a Toronto fan, the game didn't go too well. But uh, other than that, it looked amazing. And what an, an incredible presentation uh, with Wayne Gretzky there and, and the tribute to his dad and all the young kids playing. My goodness, it was hard not to get uh, a lump in your throat watching, uh, you know, this all go down. And, and just an absolutely fabulous tribute. Uh, and, again, bringing all the, the young players out from various parts of, uh, of Ontario and such and especially the player uh, who uh, played for the Ukraine now or plays for the Ukraine national team uh, and now in the OHL so just you know an incredible uh, incredible presentation uh, absolutely and and you know nice light snow falling <laughs> can you ask for anything else just enough to you know play havoc with the game and make those uh, real nice long stick to stick passes a little uh, more difficult uh, but uh, I, I thought that uh, that it just looked absolutely fantastic fabulous uh place sold out man jammed and uh, uh to the rafters and and everybody having a good time outside in the hammer uh and again presentation looked absolutely fabulous uh on uh on tv last uh yesterday as well and the great thing is get to do it tonight uh and again with uh the hamilton bulldogs and oshawa generals in town and uh they're taking the rink over which is just a great idea uh heard uh, michael andlauer on earlier on with uh, rick this morning and uh what, what a great uh you know a, a great opportunity with uh, toronto and buffalo doing a uh, an outdoor game in Hamilton, and why make it? Why not make it an annual event? I think it'd be fabulous. Um, uh, and then piggybacking with the Bulldogs on on the uh, the next night is 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 fabulous. So uh, I, I, kudos to all involved. Kudos to all those that uh, made it happen, and the Bulldogs for for piggybacking uh, on the whole thing. And if you've uh, never seen the Bulldogs before, this is a great opportunity and a great event uh, to to catch uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs and of course the Oshawa. Our generals, obviously uh, a fierce rival. So, uh, going to do it again tonight. Another double shot, and uh, and kudos to everybody uh, involved. It looks uh, it looked absolutely incredible, and and you know it's it's great for the hammer. It makes us look good. There was lots of really cool local stories. 
uh, through the broadcast and, and, and such. And then obviously uh, having the uh, women's Olympic team out there and, and them doing their thing. It's, um, you know, it was it was uh, great. Even Max, <laughs> even Max Kerman from the Arkells uh, got out there. So uh, an absolutely uh, best way to put your foot forward, Hamilton. And it looked great. And, you know, I, I heard some reporter on the air uh, prior to the weekend, you know, saying this is the 35th outdoor game and why they do it, I don't know. And, and uh, well, the reason they do it is for the fans. And, and, and let's not forget, although this is big business, um, it's sport and uh, it's entertainment. And if people don't put butts in the seats and the organizations do interesting things to put butts in the seats and, and rejuvenate interest, um, the league goes stale. And so, you know, kudos to them. It, it, you know, it's great that they've done 35. And, you know, a situation like they did uh, in Hamilton where, you know, you, you do it right between two rival cities of, uh, you know, a, a great rivalry that's been there for years. So, uh, you know, why not? Why not do it again? I, I think it's a great idea and it's a great way to bring uh, Hamilton into the fringe of, uh, of all of this. And again, the bonus is, is uh, you know, the, the Bulldogs get to get to pick piggyback on it and you know right even to uh telling stories about tim hortons or tim horton <laughs> which you know i thought wow this is like watching hamilton today uh so kudos to everybody uh who uh, worked so hard and, and those with the city to make it all happen and uh and again you know it was funny my wife and i were saying uh we'll watch we were watching the game you know between uh the world cup qualifier between uh you, you know the uh the heritage classic and such it's been a great it's been a great uh season for hamilton and it's been a great uh a, a great chance for the city to uh to put its best foot forward during this uh exit of a hopeful hopefully a exit of a global pandemic all right so still to come on the show we're going to talk to reed duffy uh broadcasting communications play-by-play guy for the hamilton bulldogs see how they are i bet you they're stoked up for the game tonight uh, touch on that also uh russia and china uh, there's chatter that uh, Russia asked uh, China for military aid with its war in Ukraine. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get to that point, uh, but we'll talk about that coming up a little later on throughout the show. Also, hey, if you're a racing head, a motorhead like I am, and Eric Thomas, uh, Raceline Radio, which you hear right here Sunday nights on CHML, 30th season kicking off. We're going to uh, help celebrate that birthday with him a little later on today uh, as well. Uh, you know to watch the NHL Classic, Heritage Classic, uh, yesterday, Tim Horton's field, and uh, just a great atmosphere, a great... Uh, 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 event and, and and everybody just looked fabulous on television. The it just it was a great presentation all around. Made the hammer look great, and uh, you know depending on uh, what side of the fence you are, a good hockey game or not so good a hockey game. All right, so the great thing is tonight it gets to happen again with your Hamilton Bulldogs hosting the Oshawa Generals uh, at seven o'clock tonight. To talk more about all of this, manager broadcasting communications, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed Duffy is with us. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, Scott, it's quite the day, my friend. I'm looking forward to getting going here. Hope everything's good with you, too. Yeah, so far, so good. So uh, everybody must just be jacked up about this, especially watching the, the game yesterday. Uh, what, what is the team doing today? What is its, what is its regimen on a day like today? You know, it's interesting the way everything is kind of unfolding. 
folded. They were here this morning for a stretch and kind of get the lay of the land, then back to the arena, and then they do their normal game day prep before they meet up at uh, First Ontario Centre and make their way over here. Um, I think they're trying to keep it as similar to a home game as possible to not let that moment get too big. But I think once they get here, it's it's going to sink in that we're we're really doing this. This is happening. And what's the reaction been like by the players? I mean, uh, again, like you said, it's another game. You got to get the points. Uh, you can't get too distracted by all of this. But it just must it must just bring them to another level. Oh, it absolutely does, Scott. When, when you you talk to the players, they for so long kind of put it into the back of their mind. Obviously, an eleven game win streak. They've been playing phenomenally, knowing that they were on the run up to this event. But in the last few days, you can really start to see it. The guys were talking about like what kind of uh, gear they were going to be wearing into the rink. What what cool stuff could they do? And you, you started to feel that special energy around this game. And then, you know, I've had the opportunity to go downstairs today and sort of stand field level and, and stand in the spot where I'll be calling the game from tonight. And you do get that. You get that moment of, wow, like we're going to be a part of this. We're going to do something that not many other OHL teams have ever done. This, this is a big moment and, and the guys are ready to go. And, you know, same thing for the staff and people like you. I mean, you gotta, you got to do the job down there as well and not get uh, distracted by uh, everything that's going on. But, yeah, everybody, it it's just takes the, it's, uh, this whole thing to a different level. Now, we saw what happened yesterday. It seems a bit milder today. What's the ice like? Is there any chatter of that? Ice looks like it's going to be all right. Uh, a, a little bit milder today. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm sure it'll be a little bit more comfortable for the players in a 7 o'clock start than it would have been yesterday. Um, but it, it looks like everything's going to be okay. Ice has been covered, so it looks like we're all going to be good to go just a little bit after 7 o'clock. Now talk about uh, some of the other stuff that's going on up to game time. There's a bit of a fan fest going on and, and so on and so forth to get to get people ready for this event. Yeah, that South Plaza is going to be rocking right around 5 o'clock just outside of Tim Hortons Field, and they've got games over there. They've got all kinds of booths set up, giveaways, bruisers hanging around. Somebody said Simone Lawrence is here. Like, it, it is going to be a wild atmosphere down at FanFest. I believe you can win cowbells over there. So it, it's quite the setup uh, to, to roll into uh, what's going to happen at 7 o'clock for the Outdoor Showcase. FanFest was a great idea and I know everybody's excited to get that underway before we get to the game. So I would encourage everybody listening, get down here a little bit early and get in and see if you can play some games and win yourself some prizes on the way. Talk about the jerseys they're going to be wearing today. Yeah, tonight is the throwbacks returning. The jerseys that the Bulldogs wore when they won the 2018 OHL championship, the jerseys that honor the Hamilton Tigers and were you know, just a 10-minute walk from the old Barton Street Forum where in 1919, the Hamilton Tigers brought this city's first hockey championship, which was the Allen Cup, and where the, the Hamilton Tigers of the NHL played and the, the rich hockey history, especially in the east end of this city. And now we're going to wear those jerseys, the homage to the legends that came before us onto the ice tonight against the Oshawa Generals who have a great history of their own. I think it's really cool. And I think it had to be those jerseys. It had to be the vintage throwbacks uh, coming back again tonight. So uh, obviously lots of room if people want to come and check out the Bulldogs. Also a great opportunity for people who've maybe never seen them before, never attended a game. This is a cool event to, to jump on board. 
Absolutely. And I think tonight, a lot of people with kids, especially coming to their first games, maybe we get a few more people that have never put skates on before, a few more young kids that after tonight decide they want to try it. Maybe they become the next generation of Hamilton Bulldogs. I mean, you said it's got plenty of room. So come on down. The the stands are going to be packed, but they'll open up more as we as we sell. And uh, it is going to be quite the atmosphere when we get underway tonight. And what do we do to get tickets? How do we get there? How do we get tickets? HamiltonBulldogs.com has all your information. Ticketmaster.ca is where you can go to buy. Make sure you get down here. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And if, as you said, Scott, if you haven't seen the Bulldogs before, I mean, Ryan Winterton, Mason McTavish, Nathan Steos, Marco Costantini, those guys alone are worth the price of admission. All right, Reed Duffy with us, manager broadcasting communications, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs, hitting the ice at Tim Hortons Field tonight at 7 o'clock. And don't forget the Fan Fest uh, in the plaza starting at 5 o'clock before all that and lots of fun going on uh, as we gear up for uh, the Bulldogs uh, outdoor game. Reed, have a great time tonight. We'll be make sure we're paying attention and uh, let's see if we can get the Bulldogs to bring home uh, a victory. And, uh, we, you know, I guess in Hamilton there's some uh, Buffalo fans Fans, there's some Toronto fans, but it would nice to it'd be nice to see a uh, a home victory tonight. This is the one that can unite us, Scott. Everybody can get behind the Bulldogs tonight. Thanks for having me, and can't wait to get this one underway and put the voice to it. All right, good luck tonight. Reed Duffy with his manager and broadcaster and communications play-by-play announcer for the Hamilton Bulldogs tonight, seven o'clock. Tim Hortons Field. The fun gets underway at five o'clock in the Plaza for Fan Fest. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, Ukraine, and we certainly know the Russian invasion that's been going on for 19 days now. Uh, Questions are surfacing whether Russia asked China for military aid with its war in Ukraine. And what's the fallout of that? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, political science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. Uh, you know, I must admit, and we were talking about this earlier, uh, uh, Elliot, that, you know, what if China and, and Russia decide to, to team up? This sounds scary. What do we know about this? Is there any truth to it? <laughs> You're looking for truth here, are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the, um, the situation, just to sum up, is that, as you said, uh, there's a news report that Russia has gone to China and said, we want military aid. Uh, now China has said it never happened. Russia says it's fake news. Both of them have said it's fake news. Russia has said, we have all the supplies we need to conduct our operation. And China has said, no, they have they, they've not been asked. There has been a history of military agreements. I think Russia sells more military arms to China than China buys from from Russia, but Russia has different kinds of things. So uh, there is a, a relationship there. Well, interesting, of course, is the the news flutter that comes out of, did they actually ask Russia? Did they ask? And did China say no? And now China has said it never happened. It's fake news. I sure dislike this recycling back of um, <laughs> what originated in between a Russian and mm. uh, American president's dialogue. But in any event, we do have a situation where China is a partner with Russia. They did meet, as we've discussed, on February 4th, the start of the Olympics, and decided to to release a document saying they have a partnership 
with no limits. And as part of this flurry of activity here, it's been, oh, yes, uh, we are rock solid together. But it does leave China in the awkward position of being cautioned by America not to be a sanctions buster and that there would be real implications because, uh, after all, there's been global sanctions on Russia. You can't buy from this. You can't involved in that. China, of course, is a, is a global economic player, and so far they have not taken any action to violate the American-led, but uh, global sanctioning on Russia. It's a, it's a delicate situation for China. And the U.S. and China are going to meet and talk about this uh, specific issue. What's the significance of, uh, significance of that? I think the fact that uh, that dialogue is ongoing is is a part of normal diplomacy. It is significant that at that meeting, which I think has already been held, but I haven't gotten any readout on it, that undoubtedly Mr. Blinken, who said in advance, that is the American Secretary of State said in advance, we're going to raise the whole question of Ukraine, and we're going to make it clear that we do not expect China to to uh, be a sanctions buster, and if they are, they too will then pay a very significant cost. Uh, having watched uh, how America led, but the dem- democratic uh, countries of the world, it isn't just West, but there's also China, China's neighbors, uh, Japan and even Singapore, chipped in on, yes, we're going to join in this, uh, in this instant, instant response within eight days, putting together a way to make uh, Russia a pariah state, making them basically an economically non-viable state uh, in terms of participation in global economy. And China is a major player in global economy. So this is um, some, one lesson, I think, that probably uh, was noted in Beijing was just how fast you can become an, a pariah state. They mm. don't want that for themselves. So is this awkward for China, Elliot, or are they playing both sides against the other? They are trying to find which way they can come out a winner in all this. Uh, Perhaps I've used this phrase with you before, but in the contemporary world, China always wins. No matter Mm -hmm. what crisis comes along, China finds a way to take advantage of it and to come out stronger. One of the implications uh, that's now being raised when China looks out at the world and sees what Mr. Putin has done is that what was, in their view, a weak and divided Western democratic, again, it's not just the West, but the democratic pushback against authoritarianism was so weak and divided and exploitable, they didn't have any worries. They wanted to climb to their own dominance in the region and, and then eventually dominant in the world. Now they're seeing suddenly that the forces of democracy are getting stronger globally, including in their neighborhood. And that's against their own long-term interests as they see it, as they plot their own rise. You know, we've talked about this before, Elliot, and, and what, um, you know, how at one time the world's view of China was one thing, say 20 years ago, the golden goose. Now, uh, the you know, uh, for democracies uh, view China completely different now. Uh, and I remember doing the, during the whole Two Michaels thing, right. uh, us talking about how, you know, they really didn't care what anybody thought of them. That's, you know, so why would they care about this? Why would they care? that the world is all of a sudden turned on Russia and that it can on a dime if, if they don't care? Well, they do care, of course. Uh, the evolution of geopolitics is of central importance to them. 
we should also remind ourselves, just incidentally, that a core tenet of Chinese foreign policy is that boundaries are sacrosanct, and one state cannot invade another, because remember, they're coming off, as they put it, their great national rejuvenation from having been humiliated by being invaded and attacked. And now that was all being thrown off under the leadership of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, and therefore uh, his his uh, unprecedented, as it's being put in the press, uh, uh, attempt to get himself elected to a third term as leader, basically leader for life in October. Uh, this throws a monkey wrench into this this disorganized world against China's rise. The world is getting organized, and what does that mean for China? Uh, only got about a minute left, about 30 seconds left. Uh, China going through an issue with COVID now, with Omicron, hitting them hard. Apparently, there isn't that high a vaccination rate in, in places like Hong Kong. Uh, only 30% of those in the 80 range have had two doses. Um, and apparently, the Chinese vaccine isn't as good against other variants. So what is their situation with COVID-19? They still have a zero COVID policy. They It's not just... Shenzhen, which is right across from Hong Kong, is saying our outbreak is due to Hong Kong, but up in the northeast there's also a big outbreak. So the stealth Omicron, the variant of Omicron, which is even more infectious, is now attacking China. They are reacting vigorously to this in their normal fashion, calling out 700 troops and things to go help. But they, um, they're cracking down on this. They are very worried that their zero COVID policy is not going to work. That, in turn, will help undermine the legitimacy of the party, just as Mr. Xi Jinping is looking for stability in the world, which Russia is upsetting, and uh, a stable situation at home as he approaches his key goal, which is to get elected again as a leader for life. Elliot Tepper with us, political science, Carleton University, talking about, uh, obviously, the situation with Russia and Ukraine and how China could play a role in this. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And thank you, and take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. If you're a motorhead, you'll know that uh, Raceline Radio Network hits the airwaves every Sunday night from CHML and it goes right the way across the country. And here's uh, this will make you feel old. Uh, celebrating its 30th season this year. Uh, let's bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, we're good, Scooter. Always good to be on with you. We're uh, doing a few more of these, which uh, which is, which makes me happy. So it's always fun to be on with you. I can't believe it's been thirty years that you've been doing this. How did this whole I thing know. get started? How did this? Uh, and, and you know, for those that don't know this, well, you explain the show and and how it got started. Well, yeah, I think if I can encapsulate it here quickly. Uh, back in when I was coming from Niagara Radio and then getting to Toronto Radio. At the same time, I was doing some Toronto Maple Leaf uh, television hockey and a few other things. And right about the same time, um, I was doing some announcing work at the speedways around here, Merrittville Speedway, Ransomville Speedway, which my wife's family co-owned in the 70s and the 80s. I also did some work for Bruce Mellenbacher and Bob Slack at Cayuga Speedway on the PA there. And Bruce and a partner that he uh, linked up with, the late John Massingbird, uh, got together over, a, I guess, at a picnic table with some whiskey and said, you know something, I'd like to start a television program where we televise 
Canadian events that don't normally get televised. And, and they just, okay, they put together Raceline Motorsport Television, which was carried on TSN for years. We did a lot of cast car stuff, which became the Pinty Series, did a lot of American and Canadian tour stuff, and we did uh, you know, tractor pulls and midget races and dirt-modified stuff and all kinds of things. And, and basically what I, what I always thought would be good was be to have a radio companion to that. There were all kinds of motorsport magazine shows, as they called them, in the U.S. Some were local yeah. and colloquial and were terrible, and others were better. But there wasn't anything like that on the air in Canada. So we put this thing together. We used Scott Goodyear as a, as a demo. We took it to then the program director of what was CJCL 1430. They were doing the Leafs and the Jays and the Argos, and we wanted to add the racing element to it. Of course, the Indian Toronto was certainly still huge, and Scott Goodyear was doing you know, some heroic things, and, and Paul Tracy was appearing on the, on the horizon. So we put this thing together, and we hit the air May 7th of 1992 with our very first show, Toronto only. Ken Squire, who's a NASCAR TV pioneer, and Scott Goodyear were our first guests, and we built it from there. We're now heard on 11 stations across the country with 14 airings a week. Um, 12 months of the year. And of course, Global News Radio 900 CHML is our co-flagship station. And uh, that's basically the, the, the thumbnail story in a nutshell, if I can condense it that way. Uh, so uh, over the course of 30 years of watching this and, and, and doing this Canadian version of this, how ha- has this sport grown in Canada? Your thoughts on the health of the sport over those 30 years? Well, it, it's, We've been lucky in the simple fact that we hit the wave, as I said, the right, the right time in, in 92 when the Indy was still hot. Scott Goodyear, just you know, a few weeks after we got on the air with Alan Sir Jr. at the Indianapolis 500 that year, produced the closest, still the closest finish in Indianapolis yeah. 500 history. And then we had guys like, like Jacques Villeneuve, who won an IndyCar championship, an Indy 500 championship, and a Formula One championship. And Paul Tracy was doing what he was doing. And, and luckily enough, for such a small country population-wise, we still to this day continue to produce, and I think I've said this to you before, it's, it's kind of an, uh, an old hat to chime in on, but it happens to be the truth, and we take advantage of that, is that this country continues to produce some of the best auto racers that there are in the world. And, mm. and that is something that we latch onto because the mandate of, of Raceline Radio has always been to accentuate Canadian talent, Canadian driving talent, Canadian uh, administration talent, and management talent, uh, all the way through, and events as well, and we've never run short of material or people to talk about, and that has been one of the things that we've we've you know r- ridden very very successfully. We're very lucky to have that happen, and of course through sponsors like Subaru Canada, who have been with us every uh, every step of the way from show one in 1992 to this present day, and uh, helping those guys sell cars. General Tires has been with us as well, and to have. A sponsor last with you, Scott, that long for niche specialty programming, long-form programming in the radio business is unheard of and is still unheard of, and we've been very fortunate that we've been able to boast that all 30 years of our existence. All right, got about a minute left. Uh, Favorite interview, favorite moment? Wow. Uh, Probably to do with the, the, the Andretti family comes to mind, certainly, when uh, we were one of Michael's seven wins in Toronto. We're doing a Raceline show live. You know what live radio is like. we got a big crowd in front of us waiting for Michael to show up. We think we're going to have to sign off without him suddenly. 
down Thunder Rally in an overloaded golf cart. Here comes Michael Andretti with the, the PR guy from the team and the PR guy from IndyCar to jump up on stage and do an interview in front of a roaring crowd. You know what that's like. That doesn't happen very often in this game. That was a good one. The other one involving his dad, Mario, we had him scheduled for an interview. There was a terrific thunderstorm, and I thought, he's no way he's coming. We had a huge gaggle of kids under our canopy getting out of the rain. Up out of the center comes this little little face in, a, in an orange raincoat, and it's Mario. He made it, and he jumped up on stage, and we did an interview with the, with the greatest, winningest driver of our generation. So there's just two interviews that come to mind. John Force's interview, certainly all the NASCAR guys. We've talked to hundreds and hundreds of guests over the course of 30 years, and we've been very, very lucky that, that a lot of them, most of them, 99% of them are very cooperative, and the longer you do it, the more they respect you, and we don't get too many no's. Eric Thomas with us, Raceline Radio Network, every Sunday night right here on CHML, celebrating its 30th season, 30 years. That's uh, That certainly is a milestone. Congratulations, Eric. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, sir. Three. We'll talk to everybody Sunday night, 8 o'clock. Thanks, bud. All right. Uh, before we left uh, you all on Friday, before uh, we changed our time and started March break, uh, we were talking about the Conservative Party leadership race, which uh, is set for September 10th, so still like six months away. But lots of people talking about it. Uh, and also with the uh, entrance of Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown uh, over the weekend, uh, adding more uh, hype to it as well, uh, Jean Charest already announcing uh, last week. Let's bring in Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Always a pleasure, Scott. Uh, appreciate you being here, Andrew. Uh, September 10th. This thing's like six months away. Are you surprised that there's so much interest in it, inter- uh, interest in it now that we're even talking about it at this point? Oh, no, of course not. I mean, right now it's a minority government uh, that Trudeau has, so the government could fall apart really whenever the opposition decides uh, to pull the trigger. It's, you know, obviously the government in waiting, uh, and so whoever's going to lead the Conservative Party is obviously going to be a big name in Canadian politics. It's a big story. And uh, a long run, do you think, uh, going six months to choose this leader? Should it be shorter? Is this just right? Why this? Why six months? Uh, well, I mean, I think they're going to give them some, themselves some time to sort of think about what kind of leader they want. They've decided to make a bit of a shift from, uh, or a lot of people are suggesting that it's time for a shift from Aaron O'Toole, but whether or not uh, that's the right choice or what that's going to look like, I think is still sort of up for debate. When you take a look at the candidates that have declared, you've got quite a bit of uh, diversity uh, there for conservatives to pick. And so I think they're giving themselves a little bit of time to sort of think about their options before they settle on a final choice. Is it Jean Charest, the entrance of Jean Charest and Patrick Brown that have got the attention? If they weren't in it, would we be talking about it as much, do you think? Well, I think we're beginning to get a sense of the shape that this is going to take. So, you know, you've got a lot of potential candidates kind of waiting in the wings, but now we're finding out who's really going to take the big jump and, and throw their hat into the ring. Up until now, it's been Pierre Polyevre, who's really been the front runner, the person that everybody has assumed is kind of, you know, out of the blocks early and has, has got the most to lose here. But now we're getting a sense of what his competition is. And, and we're now we're sort of assessing how Pierre Polyevre stacks up against uh, some of these other people. Uh, a lot of interest in this because people are looking for a strong alternative at this point. 
Yeah, absolutely. Whoever uh, takes over as the head of the Conservative Party, uh, you know, would be the presumptive government in waiting. I mean, that's sort of the way that Canadian politics works. So I think there's, you know, a lot of interest that's in this to find out the direction the Conservatives are going to go, the option that they're going to present. And again, we're in a minority government context, so it's likely we're going to have an election sooner rather than later, not in the immediate or even really medium future, given that we just had one, but certainly before, you know, the traditional four years expires. So it's going to be really interesting to see who the uh, conservatives pick and what they have in store for Canadians. Surprised at the slate of candidates that are running, expecting anybody to jump in last minute. Uh, I mean, there's still some time, not particularly surprised at who's jumping in. I think there might have been a few people, you know, who were interested in the fact that Jean Charest decided to jump in. I mean, he's already had a long political career as the premier of Quebec and and as the former conservative leader. Uh, Looks like he's still got some gas in the tank and he's decided to go for it. Um, Not hugely surprising, not totally expected either, but I think people are going to be interested to see what he has to say. Uh, especially, you know, with his affiliation with liberals, maybe many are calling him uh, uh, obviously very much a, a centrist like Aaron O'Toole is. Is this just not a replacement for Aaron O'Toole? Well, he's gonna, they're going to try to paint him that way. But the, the Quebec liberals are obviously a little bit of a different party than, than the federal liberals are. Mm-hmm. Jean Charest is going to come in with an awful lot of baggage uh, simply from having been in politics for so long. And I think he knows that. So he's going to anticipate a lot of the, the attacks that he's going to get from his record. But I think he's uh, as well-placed as anybody to defend that record um, when he comes under pressure for it. What sort of baggage do you think would drag him down? Well, there's obviously we, we the uh, whether or not it, it can is, I think, another question. I mean, when, when you've been premier for that long, there are all kinds of yeah. gaffes, political scandals, things that kind of add up that people are going to poke into. Whether or not people actually care about that is, I think, uh, an open question. I'll be interested to see how this fares in Quebec. I mean, he's obviously suggesting that he's going to be the person that's going to be able to bring Quebec along uh, for the Conservatives. Whether or not that's true or not, I think, is a little bit of an open question, but uh, I think it's an interesting uh, question to follow obviously uh it seems that the country has become quite polarized uh especially over the vaccine mandate thing and it's bizarre it seems you know with 90 percent vaccinated we're still screaming about the last 10 percent who can unite not only this party uh but the country who, who do you think's got the best chance of bringing people together that's a great question. I mean, if I knew then, uh, mm. or if I knew how to do that, then I'd be in the race myself, of course, uh, for, a, for a political party. But I mean, you're absolutely right that the, the coronavirus pandemic has been one of the most divisive issues in, in Canadian politics recently. And we see here with the conservative leadership um you know, there there are different approaches to that. Pierre Pelevra obviously has been a little bit more associated kind of with the right uh, side of the party, you know, a little bit more skeptical of some of the restrictions, a little bit more eager, eager to see some of the some of those lifted. Uh, some of his uh, competition have suggested maybe taking a little bit of a, a go slow approach. But I think it's going to be the kind of issue that they're going to try to differentiate themselves on and suggest that they have the right path forward to get them in the government. Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor in Canadian Politics and Public Law with the University of Toronto, talking about the Conservatives and their search for a new leader coming up in September. Andrew, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, you too. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly talked a lot about food over the course of this global pandemic, which, uh, by the way, uh, two years, here we are, another March break. 
uh, and hopefully coming out of the end of this. But we certainly remember the toilet paper thing, and then uh, barges getting stuck in the Suez Canal, and it, it just seemed that with uh, absenteeism and stuff, the supply chain has just in some situations ground to a halt and is trying desperate to get back up and running to what it was pre-COVID levels. Now we have a conflict, an invasion, uh, Russia invading Ukraine, and the stress that that puts on supply chains, including the world's food supply. To talk more about all of this, Stuart Smythe is with us, Associate Professor, Industry-Funded Research Chair in Agri-Food Innovation, Department of Agriculture, Resource Economics, uh, University of Saskatchewan, and is with us now. Stuart, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, pleasure to join you this afternoon. So we certainly know, Stuart, over the course of this global pandemic, how that has interfered with supply chains. Add a world conflict into this. How much more complicated does it make all of this? Well, I don't know about you, but my stress levels are kind of at their peak. So I'm really hoping that nothing gets added to the pile and that we can start Mm. to remove some of the, the challenges we've been facing over the last weeks and months. So uh, let's talk before the conflict in Ukraine, before the Russian invasion. Where was our food chain? We certainly know how it's had, uh, you know, dips and dives and, and such during the uh, the pandemic. What kind of shape was it in just prior to this invasion? It was definitely under some stress, right? We, inflation was up um, and, and we saw, you know, some, some uncertainties in, in some of the commodity uh, fuel was trending up and oil and gas. And so, as you mentioned, with the, the transportation challenges at times, we so throughout the fall, we, we did see a, a steady rise in the price of food. Um, and then it's just been exasperated in the in the past month, you know, two, two to three weeks, really, with all the uncertainty thrown in the food prices are, are trending up quicker than than I would have ever anticipated. Is this a shortage issue or is this still a distribution issue? It's just like somewhere there's a bottleneck. We just can't get it moving. Yeah, right now it's not a shortage issue that, you know, certainly some of the wheat that the Ukraine will have produced last year isn't going to be able to be exported. But they, you know, given that we're close to seeding new crops, the amount of wheat that Russia would be expected to export prior to next fall would would be a a relatively minor amount of their total wheat export. So it's we're not in a supply problem yet. It's it's largely the uncertainty that that markets just don't know what's going to happen. They they ha- you know markets detest uncertainty. So when that happens, prices tend to rise. So obviously you mentioned wheat, a uh, huge commodity. Where does Russia stand with that? Is it a case of 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 uh, of exporting it and making revenue through that, or that's not available? How does wheat come into play with this conflict? Yeah, so so the Ukraine is actually the fourth largest producer, and with um, you know a lot of countries putting bans on on Russian exports, Russia's ability to export any grain is is going to be curtailed significantly and a, a lot of those exports go into you know continental africa into the middle east and through asia so we saw this 15 years ago in 2007 and 8 when there were food shortages due to spike spikes in prices and, and that led to a lot of the you know the the revolutions you know egypt libya uh syria in those countries and and so we saw a, a significant 
global turmoil due to to those food shortages. And it, it's possible that this, you know, the conflict may spread beyond as food sources become, in, you know, less available in, in parts of the world. Uh, obviously, when uh, we apply sanctions to Russia, um, obviously that uh, you know stops them from exporting or selling anything, but obviously creating shortages in the rest of the world. Uh, w- with now Russia sitting on this, what happens to them? Where does it go? How does this affect? Where does the re- where do uh, the supplies come from? We're fortunate that. You know, Russia is a major exporter of fertilizer and in some of the, you know, various nutrients that, that go into fertilizer, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Um, so in the northern hemisphere, we're not going to, we'll be fine in Canada because we've we've already imported our fertilizer needs for this growing season. But in the southern mm. hemisphere where it, it, they're able to, to plant um, more than one crop a year, it certainly has the potential to limit limit global production in in exported food commodities, fruits and vegetables, and and some of the bulk commodities like uh, corn or soybeans in out of the southern hemisphere may start to be affected over the coming months. What does this mean for Canada's exports? I, I think we're pretty strong. Most of our exports are relate are re- weather related, and so as I mentioned. You know, we've imported the the fertilizer requirements, so so we're in good situation for this year. Other than the price being up, um, Canada's production and export capacity is is going to be predominantly weather related. If we get the proper moisture uh, in the spring and and throughout the summer, we'll we'll be in good shape. Stuart Smythe with us, Associate Professor, Industry-Funded Research Chair in Agri-Food Innovation, Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics, University of Saskatchewan. Stuart, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hamilton, you look great yesterday uh, uh, with the Heritage Classic, man. It just, uh, Tim Horton's feel just absolutely came alive. And uh, the great thing is we get to do it again. Uh, a double shot with uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs and Oshawa Generals tonight at 7 o'clock. From between 5 and 7 down on the plaza in the main area there, uh, there's a great fan fest going on. So get there early and, uh, you know, take advantage of uh, the festivities that are going on down there. Uh, already, I think, like 13,000 seats sold, which is incredible when you think about it and of course with the stadium there's room for everybody so uh last minute thing might be a cool idea and a neat way to spend your uh monday night let's bring in steve stales general manager of your hamilton bulldogs he is with us now steve thanks for the time i hope you're well hey my pleasure scott i'm doing very well really excited what's the buzz like great day what's the buzz like down there what's it like walking around there Uh, it's been it's been incredible i mean uh We've heard some funny stories of even some of the NHL folks that uh, stuck around to be able to help with the ice surface. Uh, they've been walking around town, and uh, they told a funny story today about walking into a shop, and they and uh, the lady asked the, the gentleman from the NHL, "You're here for the game on Monday night?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm here for the game on Monday night." But there's all, and they had no idea about the Sunday night game. They were talking about the Bulldogs game, at least at this point. Anyway, so he got a real uh, local flavor of how proud we are here in Hamilton. 
That's great. Good for him. That, so uh, how cool is it and how cooperative, how easy was this to do? The fact that, you know, they're doing this uh, neutral site game with Buffalo and Toronto and you guys piggybacking on this. I mean, it's, it's, it's fabulous you made this work. Yeah, it's amazing. And the vision of Mike Bauer uh, in wanting to have a MasterCard moment for our fans and for our players and their families. Uh, it's his vision. And obviously with his relationship with the National Hockey League, we got the you know, we got this in motion quite a while ago, but, uh, you know, it, it certainly takes a lot of time. And, and as easy as it might look from the outside as far as the arenas here, um, and, you know, we just kind of slide in on the next night to play, there was a lot of work, Scott, and we have an incredible front office staff led by Jeff Ilya, Stefano Reale, Peggy Chapman, Caitlin Belitho, who deserve a ton of credit for being able to get this uh, uh, this game going for us. So I remember last week talking to the head of hockey operations and actually getting this rink built and what the process was over the last week or couple of weeks that uh, uh, that it took to get this thing done. Uh, what now? Is it easy just to hang on for an extra day? I mean, or is it does it really throw a stick to have to to wait to dismantle this again? Uh, well, yeah, there's just there's a cost to it for sure. Uh, you know, to keep the great people from the NHL and their uh, you know, the, the, everyone who ma- maintains the rink around and, and, uh, and alike, there's so much that sort of we piggyback off of, but to continue on, there's certainly a great deal that goes into it and a lot of planning for sure. Uh, different corporate sponsors, uh, as well, uh, different broadcast. Uh, so a lot of changeover in a short amount of time, but, uh, it's, it's just been really, really encouraging to watch everybody work together and, and get on. How- how cool is this as far as bringing in new fans? Because, um, you know, this is a different event. It's a different situation. It, it's not a typical uh, game between the Oshawa Generals and Hamilton Bulldogs, although I'm, I'm sure once the puck drops, it will be. Uh, but what does this do for, you know, to, for recognition and to bring new, new butts into the seats? Uh, I'm glad you brought it up, Scott. That's exactly what the theme is from our perspective, from the Bulldogs' perspective, is community inclusion. And so we have a great deal of amazing guests. Sarah Nurse will be dropping the, the puck for us tonight again. She did it last night as well. Yeah. Rico Phillips, who's the OHL's uh, lead on uh, cultural diversity, is here with us today and with our team today. And A big part of what we're looking to do as a, as a league moving forward and also as an organization. So um, There's certainly been some great, uh, with our partnership with First Ontario uh, and some uh, tickets being given out to underprivileged youth in our area to be able to see this. So it's and the timing of it, Scott, I think was just, has just been really, really cool with uh, COVID just kind of in the rearview yeah. mirror now for us. Yeah. Opportunity for us to be able to celebrate out, outdoors. Uh, first Monday of March break. It's just been, uh, it's actually worked out really well. We're really excited. Yeah, exactly. The timing couldn't be better. Uh, is there any chance of this becoming an annual thing where the NHL does this at this site uh, once a year between these two teams? Uh, do you see that working? Is that possible? And then doing this again with the Bulldogs? Yeah, I guess that would be a question for the National Hockey League, Scott. But anytime that uh, they would be back there, we'd certainly be keen to be able to do this again and and bring such a great event to our, our fans and our sponsors and, uh, and our players as well. All right, obviously puck drops tonight at 7 o'clock, but FanFest just about to get underway. Uh, you're trying to get people to come down there early and, and enjoy the experience. What's going on uh, during FanFest, during the, the first couple hours of this? Uh, well, we got bands. we got lots of fun things for everybody to do and interactive uh, activities all around the stadium. So, And on such a beautiful night. I mean, I was just outside, and uh, I think it's 6 degrees, so what a beautiful way to spend, spend your evening. So uh, I encourage anybody who wants to get out for uh, – 
a great night of entertainment here at Tim, Hort- Tim Hortons Field. They had to come on down. All right, there you have it. Uh, Steve Sayos with us, general motor or general manager rather of your Hamilton Bulldogs, and still time to get down there, get, take part in Fan Fest, and of course the game at seven o'clock tonight at Tim Hortons uh, Field. There's still some seats available for you, Steve. What a great event! Congratulations to everybody in the Bulldogs organization for pulling this off and taking advantage of it, and good luck tonight. I appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Steve Steos, general manager of your Hamilton Bulldogs, 7 o'clock tonight, Tim Hortons Field, double shot of uh, outdoor hockey in the hammer. And again, March break, man, it doesn't get any better than that. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up tomorrow, Ukrainian President Zelensky, uh, as we know, he's addressed various parliaments in in, um, in uh, political environments around the world, including the UK Parliament. He's going to speak to Canadian uh, Canada's Parliament tomorrow at 11 a.m. We will cover that live here on CHML. And I understand coming up in, on Wednesday, he's also going to speak uh, be speaking to Congress in the United States to talk about all of this. Let's bring in. Jean-Bierre Tellier, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Jean-Bierre, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you very much, Scott. So the significance of these addresses by the Ukrainian president, we remember uh, one of the first ones he did with the UK, and my goodness, it was absolutely riveting. Going to speak to the US, I understand, uh, later on in the week. How significant is this to go out and, and literally speak to all of these governments the way he is? Oh, I think it's important because he really has a big wish list and uh, he's still waiting for an answer uh, that will satisfy him and, and his country. So we, I think he's, what he's looking for is more support. Um, and, and that support is kind of missing for the moment from what we can understand. And so for him, he's going to be able to make a plea directly uh, to Canadians and a Canadian representative. So this is important for him. Uh, and it will be Canadian tomorrow as you said, and then the American on Wednesday. So that's also another important feature, I would say. So, yes, it's important. And we don't see that very often. And so uh, it's just show how uh, important is this event and, and, and what we are witnesses witnessing in Ukraine also. We certainly, you know, have, have followed this this leader and, and the her- uh, heroics and, and, and the leadership he has provided for the Ukrainian uh, people. And it's great that... Um, that the various governments are letting him speak. They're all standing up and applauding afterwards. It's it's truly moving stuff. But at the end of the day, he's pleading for his and his country's life. Um, is this just theatrics, or is this actually convincing uh, the free world that it must do more? Um, there's a lot of theatrics in that, that's for sure. Uh, but message and communication is an important part of, of, of that diplomatic uh, task or exercise. Um, also, I think what may change tomorrow is that a Canadian will see directly what he has to say or will listen to what he has to say. And he will be speaking directly to Canadians. And uh, as you know, and as we all know, there's an important portion of the population that is from Ukrainian uh, descent. Mm-hmm. And so that will also... Uh, be important and, and, and people will relate to what's happening in Ukraine. And so perhaps it will bring people to think 
differently about the kind of support that we are rely, uh, willing to support to provide to Ukraine. But at the end of the day, will that change really? I'm not sure for the moment. It may change, uh, especially with what is we are seeing continuing uh, going on in Ukraine. Uh, but yes, there is the rhetoric that we'll, we see tomorrow. And then to see if, if we will push more and do more for Ukraine and what could we do also. And I think that's a complex uh, issue. Uh, and, and we'll see about that. And we'll see the response of the government after uh, Zelensky speak to, to parliamentarian. We know when the prime minister was over there, he was getting quite a few questions from the foreign press saying, well, why don't you step up with NATO and, and increase mm-hmm. your spending? Because we're obviously close to the bottom of the pact with that. Uh, after this, after the president uh, Zelensky speaks, do you think this will domestically play uh for canadians that yeah he's right we should be we should be doling out more for nato it's kind of a window of opportunity that we have and it's a bit sad to say that like that but yes because there is an urgency we see the crisis and we see it on tv constantly so we understand the issue and for years canadians have been very reluctant to spend more on 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 the military and i when i say canadian i mean the population in general we don't really understand why we should need to buy f-35 for instance that are very expensive and and and, but with that going on uh yes the Population will probably be a bit more willing to spend more on, on the military. And this also will help the liberals because it has been hard for them to convince Canadians to spend more on that kind of spending. It's more of a conservative thing uh, in general. And so for the liberals to show that they, they, they want to push on, on that kind of spending, uh, politically, it may help them. So this window of opportunity, uh, we have two things going on, uh, maybe a strong stronger willingness from the Canadian population to spend on the military and also a willingness from the government of the day to also go that in that uh, vein, in that, in that way. So that could, in the end, result in more spending. The question being now how we will finance that additional spending, which is the constant conversation we have in Canada. It's about not just spending more, but paying more for those more extra uh, additional expenditures. We know that the Prime Minister was over there and had several ministers uh, with him and was meeting various uh, people, uh, leaders throughout Europe and such. Does this help or was this a photo op? Some are are, are unsure what the objective was. Does this help when you see the leader go out doing this? Mm-hmm. I, I myself, I'm not sure what was the objective, so I'm kind of leaning towards a Photoshop because uh, initially it was supposed to be a, a very short travel to Germany and meet the new chancellor. And now, okay, the Trudeau uh, used the opportunity to speak with others. It, it's not a bad idea, but at the same time, you should explain us why he's there and what exactly is his objective, which I have not here. I have here the finance minister say, well, it's a good thing to speak directly face to face to people. Okay. That I understand, but we are in the area of COVID and everybody is doing things online. It's still working. And so for me, I'm still curious and I'm not completely satisfied for the reason why going there. Um, if it can really bring new um uh, new, new initiative on the ground. Uh, and what's the role of Canada? Uh, Canada has been searching for a role on the political scene for years. We have none for the moment. Uh, we're very shy, I would say. Uh, and so we are. We have lost the leadership that we had before in terms of uh, 
peace process, for instance, and be kind of a mediator or an arbitrator in international conflicts. And so are we looking to gain that again? Maybe, maybe that would be a role, an interesting role for can, the, the country. But how will we do that? Uh, we don't have any information. So uh, maybe tomorrow Trudeau will speak. Maybe next week when Parliament resumes, we'll have more on that. But again, I, I must say that the current government is lacking in the communication, communicating to Canadians exactly what's the objective, what is are his intentions. Um, those are not clear, and so we have to speculate, and that's sad a bit. Jean-Vierre Vitalier with us, Professor of School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Ukrainian President Zelensky will speak to Canadian Parliament tomorrow at 11. We'll cover it live here. Jean-Vierre, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you very much. I guess the latest news today is uh, there's rumors floating around that Russia is uh, asking China uh, for help, specifically military help, with the Ukraine invasion, uh, which seems odd when you think of the old days and the Russian military and the powerhouse that it was, that uh, here we are 19 days into this and Ukraine is still uh, heroically uh, defending itself uh, and and, uh, proving to be a very formidable opponent for uh, the Russian military, which uh, many are questioning um, its strength at this point. Let's bring in Oral Brown, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me on. Your thoughts on uh, the information we're hearing that Russia is or could be addressing uh, China to try to get some sort of help. Russia or sorry, China denies that this has been going on. What are your thoughts? Is there do you think there's any truth to this? There may be. I mean, we have this fog of war and there will be a lot of disinformation, either inadvertent or deliberate. But it seems plausible because clearly Mr. Putin has miscalculated. It also tells us that uh, Russia is indeed just a remnant of uh, the Soviet Union and that there is an asymmetry of power between China and Russia. They're not equals and uh, China does not treat Russia like an equal. And of course, we have had uh, Mr. Biden's team issue loud warnings to China. Uh, This team is remarkably good at issuing loud warnings, not particularly in terms of actually having viable policies. And it's interesting, uh, Jake Sullivan said that China will have to pay a price if there are large-scale sanctions evasion, evasion efforts. So I don't know what he means by that. Uh, is it if there are small-scale uh, sanction evasions that will be overlooked? Uh, would there be a correction, as it was with Mr. Biden when he first said, if there are minor incursions that wouldn't matter that much before the war, but it would have to be a major invasion, then they had to do a lot of cleanup after that? Uh, is Does this put China in a awkward position or uh, an advantage where they can play one side against the other? At the moment, China is doing very well. They uh, are in some ways a beneficiary of this. The, the Russians clearly uh, have uh, unified NATO to an extent that hasn't been before. There is massive rearmament in NATO, particularly in the case of 
Germany, which is spending now just this year 100 billion euros, which is larger than the entire Russian defense budget. And they will be coming up Germany to uh, the 2% and beyond of GDP, which they were not anywhere close to that. Uh, and China uh, is uh, getting very good deals on energy from Russia because Moscow is desperate to find alternate sources to energy sales that they're losing in the United States and will probably lose in the future in, in Europe. But there is a question of how does China play its hand? If they keep proclaiming that they support Russian action as they have done, and should there be even minor evasions, contrary to what Mr. Solomon said, even those would eventually put China in a, a bad light. And China is having some problems of its own. Uh, we see that they're not immune to COVID. They're shutting down some very large cities because the zero policy to COVID uh, uh, has not worked uh, very well. And so um, China clearly is vastly more powerful and much more successful economically than Russia. But there's almost a danger that we may be overestimating China as well. What do you think China is learning from the world's reaction to Russia? It's difficult to know because uh, we don't know what the lessons are. The lessons uh, are not complete. Um, what uh, they uh, have learned is that the United States has uh, an astonishingly weak and inept leadership uh, that confuses unity with leadership, and they tend to lead from uh, behind, and they have no real strategy. Uh, that the exit uh, from uh, uh, Afghanistan was so disastrous that it emboldened uh, uh, Russia, but at the same time, they're learning that if you overplay your hand, there can be a reaction, and you could have people like Boris Yeltsin who actually uh, enunciates a strategy, uh, if only the Americans would follow that uh, that strategy, which is to actually make sure that Vladimir Putin's invasion is defeated and is seen to be defeated. But if Russia still prevails, if Russia is able to capture all of Ukraine, and Russia is using brutal force. There's a uh, new horror every day, every hour, uh, and we are still not providing enough of what uh, the Ukrainians are requesting in terms of uh, armaments, never mind uh, no fly zone, which is not likely. Then if Russia prevails, then they could use nuclear blackmail to say to Mr. Biden, well, if you don't lift the sanctions, uh, we are going to threaten you further with nuclear weapons. And we don't know how Mr. Biden would uh, react. He already is uh, seemingly very constrained by uh, Russian nuclear threats. Uh, what lie? We certainly know that Ukraine is not a NATO country and that uh, there's this NATO border along the edge of Ukraine. And if, if NATO forces cross that, it's World War Three. Uh, but what uh, providing that does not happen, what line does Putin have to cross before you will see involvement? Or does it is it does it still come down to that border? If, if, if Russia does not come across that NATO border, that's it. What we don't know is cross just about every every other line. Hmm. Uh, yes, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but the United States provided assurances to Ukraine, uh, according to the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, which was basically saying to Kiev, give up your nuclear 
arsenal, which was the third largest at that time in the world, and we will uh, be among the countries that will uh, assure you of uh, the integrity of your territory and your sovereignty. And that didn't seem to mean uh, very much at all. And yes, Mr. Biden is saying not one inch of uh, NATO territory, but then uh, Russia has raised its nuclear alert and Mr. Biden is saying, well, you know, uh, we don't want to get into a nuclear war. What happens if uh, the Russians just take over, uh, you know, not an inch, but uh, uh, a few thousand acres of territory in Narva, which is Russian speaking in Estonia, will Mr. Biden uh, risk uh, World mm-hmm. War III over a small portion of Estonia? We don't know. Haro Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs with the University of Toronto. Oral, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. And uh, I don't know who he had to grease to get down here, but uh, man, Scott Radley is actually doing his radio show, not covering the game, but doing his radio show at the game. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show with us now, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. How did you suck people in? How did you get this? How how can you possibly do a radio show while you're watching a hockey game? Well, I am actually covering it, too, because I'm doing the covering for the spec after I'm done the radio show. So we're, right. you know... And we're rolling one into the next. But um, So, you know, again, Will and I were talking off air. So you're talking about the, the tragedy of Ukraine. And, oh, he scored! The Hamilton just scored. Like, how are you going to do that? <laughs> uh, we'll probably not talk about the tragedy of Ukraine today for that reason. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay away from anything that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to have flash pots here or something when they score. That, that would be um, startling. So what are you going to talk? What are you going to talk about? You know, your hot dogs have arrived. Uh, here comes the tall, cool one. Who is the tall, cool one? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, give us give us an idea. What are you going to be doing? Well, no, we're we're doing the regular show, talking about all kinds of stuff. But then, uh, but then, as I say, doing the uh, covering the game for the paper. But you know what? It's it is it's look. This is. Describe, set the scene for us, because well, I mean, I saw it, I saw it on TV yesterday. Uh, obviously, I'm not down there, but it looked unbelievable. It, it does. It, it's first of all, let's say this: when you're in the press box here, and if you've ever been up to the press box, and many yeah. people listening won't, and that's fine. I'm not talking inside baseball, but it is like miles from the field. Yeah, I mean, you're in the no, every, you're in the nosebleed section. Every time a plane flies overhead, we have to duck. I yes. mean, you are like way up, and so. It's a good spot to watch a football game from. Um, it is mm-hmm. a long way from the ice when you're watching yeah. an outdoor hockey game. But yep. it's, it, I don't think that most of the people who come to these things are coming to no. um, closely watch and, you know, like bear down on the nuances of the game. You're here for the experience of... Yeah, you're not going to come to Tim Hortons Field for an arena experience, you know? No, you're coming to have the outdoor game experience that you've seen so many other places. And look, yesterday was, other than the outcome for a lot of people, it was close to perfect. You had the snowflakes yeah. falling, and it was yeah. cloud, it was nice and cloudy, and cloudy is good because, you know, bright, shiny, like it blinds everybody if you're staring at ice, and it melts the ice, too. So it was perfect. And then, you know, and this stadium, um, 
it would be nice if there were, and it's the way it's set up. You can't really, if there were seats a little closer, but this stadium is about the perfect size for this kind yeah. of thing. I mean, you can do a 90,000 seat or a hundred thousand seats like they did at uh, the big house in mm-hmm. Ann Arbor the one time when Toronto and Detroit played, but you know, it, yeah. look, there's 24,000 here. You make this four times that size, you're going to be in Stony Creek trying to watch a game. Exactly, yeah. Now, what are your, yeah, I mean, obviously you're a sports guy. Uh, your thoughts of the value of these games, and the reason I'm asking that is because, you know, like I'm not a hockey head like you are, but I think these these events are great ideas. I know there's been like 35 of them, and I heard some uh, pundit on Friday or, or Thursday say something like, you know, and they're having the 35th outdoor game this weekend in Hamilton, and I don't know why they're doing this, and it's like, Excuse me, are you not aware that the reason they do this is for the fans? It's not about the wins or the losses or any of that. It's about marketing your product. What are your thoughts about these games? Are you well, are you a purist that says this shouldn't be done, or are you in for the experience? No, I, I, I agree with him in a large part because I do think that they have done too many of them. I do think that you, you you strangle the goose that laid the golden egg when you do too many of these. However, when you say it's for the fans, it, it depends which fans you're talking about. I think, like, when this thing started, remember the, the first one was in Edmonton, Edmonton and Montreal, and then the next real one was the Buffalo one with Buffalo and the Pittsburgh yep. Penguins, and there was the snow and Sidney Crosby, and they went, and the NHL people went, wow, that's amazing television. The problem is, by having so many I don't think you have the television audience because it's not something you need to see anymore. But well, again, but again, I think it's about, about it's the site. I mean, again, whether you're sitting at home on a on a Saturday or a Sunday watching it in an arena or watching it on on an outdoor stadium field, you know, I mean, the game's the game's the game. But you know, this is about the town and the and the, well, the, the event that, that gets you're put talking on. About. It is about the fans. It's not about the TV fans because the TV people, yeah, I think, yeah. have kind of two. It's for the fans of the city where this is. And yeah. I would tell you that the people who were here yesterday, they wanted a different result, but they were thrilled that they got sure. the opportunity to do one of these. It's it's changed. It's changed. It used to be for all the fans. Now it's it's the local. It's a local event. It's not a national or international as much. People still. I think. I think they should bring this to, they should do exactly what they've just done every single year with Toronto and Buffalo. Considering the relationship with Hamilton and Buffalo and Toronto, I think this would be a great annual event. Uh, sure it would. And, and you know what? I, the only mm. question would be, does it, again, does doing this the third or fourth or fifth time yeah, still have yeah. the same uh, people willing to fork out big money? I mean, tickets are, yeah. I just said to you, I'm standing up here and it's a long way away. And um, I don't know if people are going to pay two or two hundred fifty bucks. That's a good point. Yeah, you got to have it in places where it's unique every time that they're willing to do it. But yes, it is. You know what? You know who loves it is the teams who are putting this thing on. Buffalo was the home team yesterday. Yeah. Um, Buffalo got twenty four thousand fans for a team that stinks and it isn't drawing fans right yeah. now. That's twenty four thousand <laughs> yeah. high price Toronto Maple Leafs level ticket prices. Yeah. Good point. It. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next, live from Tim Hortons Field uh, during the game uh, Bulldogs against the Oshawa Generals. Also, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great time. Thanks, Scott.
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Much appreciated. Thanks to Will and Will and Will for producing and Dave and Diana in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I like these COVID protocols. Playing hockey outdoors? Man, the ventilation's going to be great. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.